welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC. My name is Alex Clemens and I'm very excited to announce that we have a new presenting partner. The TAC have come on board as part of the Road Belongs to Us All campaign. A very important message that I think cyclists really need to take on as, as a rider myself, as a car driver myself. I think it's so important that there is uh, a clear message that the rules and the responsibilities are on everyone's shoulders. And as cyclists, we p- play a very important role in uh, ensuring our safety and other road users' safety. I touch on this a little bit more as we, was, as we start the episode, but I just wanted to make clear that we've got a, a new presenting partner. The map is still on board as our favorite apparel provider uh, within Melbourne, but also all around the globe. Uh, and throughout this episode, I've got Max Gorn, the Melbourne football, football club captain, uh, Campbell Flakemore, and myself, uh, Alex Clements, to just take a step back and look at the basics of cycling, the bare bones of the sport, talk about everything that doesn't really make sense to the general sports fan as we head into the Tour de France. So we go back from start with the yellow jerseys, we go through everything about the stages, uh, what it's all about, what the jerseys are about, what the different riders are about, uh, how the sport's financed, uh, those kind of bits and pieces in the next hour. Keen to hear feedback on it because it is a little bit different uh, and also keen to hear if you've got further questions as we head into the the biggest cycling event of the year, uh, the Tour de France, in a couple of weeks' time. Some more exciting news too is that we've got uh, Lucas Hamilton coming on the podcast uh, in a couple of nights' time and then we'll also have a Tour de France preview uh, in the lead up to the event. So if you do have some questions or anything that comes, comes to mind uh, in those two episodes, please send them through the full video is on the YouTube channel. Uh, the social posts will be uh, throughout all our social platforms. And we're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC, a new presenting partner, Campbell and Max. Very exciting to have the TAC on board as part of their The Road Belongs to Us All campaign. A very important message that I think uh, as cyclists, we feel all too close every now and then. It's it's a key part of that that message that the road is for us all and that the, the way that we play a role as athletes and normally as car drivers. It's pretty rare that we're one or and not the other. So it's very exciting to have them on board as as a partner for the podcast as we as we talk about I guess cycling 101 today and heading to the Tour de France and and the rest of the cycling year. The other good news is that, uh, of course, our our favourite apparel partner, Map, are still on board with the podcast, still producing the best kit in in our eyes in the world. I think they uh, just released their new Off Cuts range um, this week, which is, uh, well, the Off Cuts. When you, when you produce a piece of kit, you obviously don't cut it to the exact amount. Uh, so they're using that the offcuts to produce a jersey um, with a sustainable lens over the top. So there's a limited run of that on their website if you want to check that out now. Welcome, Max Corner to the podcast. Welcome, Campbell Flakemore to the podcast. Uh, today, we're talking about just cycling 101. We're going back to basics. I think for me and for pretty much every cycling fan, the cycling journey starts at the Tour de France. It starts as the, the French the French postcard that we see every June, July. And although cycling is a beautiful sport to watch, it is extremely difficult to watch. I think that there's something we've touched on over the last kind of couple of couple of episodes, like how hard it is to consume. Even when we're talking about just before, how do you watch the Tour of Swiss? Well, you need another subscription. It's, it's, it's highly disjointed. Um, but once you do get into it, it is, it's, it's a really cool sport. It's a great monologue off 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 the top. That was uh, it was a big one, wasn't it? Strong. That I was, was strong. I was in awe. I didn't want to come in. Um, <laughs> that's uh well, that's that's season four, episode twelve for you. <laughs> Did um, well, Max. First of all, just to start, let's start with the TAC. TAC new sponsor on board. Road is for how have you, how have you found the transition moving from uh, inner Melbourne to down to the beach in terms of your riding experience? Firstly, I, um, I was able to do it a lot in COVID when I first moved down here and the roads down the peninsula in the early parts of COVID in 2020 were completely empty. 
so I was able to ride around and, and have half a seat to myself and uh, a couple of those real gnarly tight roads in Red Hill where it's almost not big enough for a truck, let alone a bike and a car. Um, so it can get a bit gnarly there, but I enjoyed riding there around by myself. But um, now it's a busy, 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 especially in that summer that was in between sort of COVID outbreaks. We, we did have summer there where we were allowed out of the house. I can't really remember it, but we were allowed out of the house at one point and um, it was a busy road um, and it's, it's Mornings Peninsula that has no bike lanes. Um, so it can get quite gnarly um, compared to the city where you're almost designated a lane on Beach Road or um, if you're going uh, out Studley Park, Q-Way, it's almost your road, not the, not, not the car. But um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. I've been, I've, I, I hated riding Beach Road, Alex. I, I was I was well and truly over it. I'm over Studley Park, that little 10k loop that we call hills. It's just not hills compared to Arthur's Seat, um, mm. and I'm enjoying these quiet roads. Yeah, I think, and and that's a piece that I guess resonated with me with this, with the um, the partnership was like, well, the at the end of the day, like it's it's really although there's, there's multiple parties. Like if you as as a cyclist, the onus comes on you. Like you need to be respectful of other parties you need to play your role you need to do your bit and take your safety into your own hands campbell on the on just on the cycling journey just assume you started with tour de france yeah the first proper memories i have of watching cycling was the tour de france i think it was the the 2000 i mean i vaguely remember lance armstrong but the first stage i remember was uh six tour when Linus Gerdeman uh, won the stage and went to the yellow jersey, riding for Team Mobile, I think. So that was that was my first memory, and I'm sure, like most people that get into the sport, it's it's via the Tour de France, it's via SBS broadcasting it. So um, an exciting three or four weeks coming up for for us. Max, the same. Yeah, very similar. Um, uh, Cadell would have been. I mean, I remember. A little bit of uh, uh, Lance, only more when he was at Astana. So that was even after Cadell uh, was really at his best. Um, that fight between the Contadors, the Schlecks, uh, yep. I've plural Contadors for no reason there, Contador, Schlecks, <laughs> um, and obviously Cadell in that little part. Uh, it was great to watch him. Phil Liggett put me to sleep more than anyone else. He, he, I'm not saying, sorry, he didn't put me to sleep in terms of his bad accommodator. His voice uh, was just the voice of an angel, and I, the amount of times I had SBS on sleep time and trying to go to bed um, was great. And now, then that's that's the early memories, um, and then I've really um, almost since our first interview back in Map Studios, uh, where us three, I came in. I, I, I like cycling. I watched the tour. I watched a little bit of the Giro. Um, now I've gone the complete other way. So I've got you two to thank as well. <laughs> a little bit of accountability. Major. Yeah, regular appearances on a global cycling podcast. Um, so we've, we've got some questions from a couple of listeners in particular that have been very helpful in kind of constructing this. And I think even even as you even as you start to read through these questions questions list that we got hacked out, it's like so many of them. When you explain, when you think about what you're going to say, and you think about what, how you would explain something, it doesn't even make sense when you when you say it out loud in your head, like. Why? It doesn't make it. But we're going to start with um, jerseys. Jerseys. Yellow jersey, obviously the most significant. Maybe it's kind of like a cycling doesn't really have trophies. It's got one trophy really that comes to mind, the cobble at um, Paru Bay. But cycling is kind of like the most significant um, piece is the yellow jersey, uh, the winner of the Tour de France or what the, the leader holds in the Tour de France. It's the guy that is that crosses the line in the shortest amount of time from point to point from A to B over the consistency of the stages. Yeah. It's the, it, it's the, yeah, it gets confusing. So it's accumulated time is the most important bit to mention there. It gets confusing uh, when you, when you can win a yellow Jersey and not win a stage. Um, mm. Also, I'm not completely schooled up on how much prize money there is for stage wins compared to yellow Jersey. So I'm not that good at talking about why people don't just go for stage wins nonstop, but um, yeah, and then it gets confusing when you're talking pink jersey uh, at the Giro and well, what's with the Volta got red? Red, red. yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so that, I mean, for a novice, that just really throws things out of whack. You think Jumbo Bismar are carrying yellow for the whole team in Giro, you, you're, real, <laughs> you're real confused. And, and I guess to the other point, Max, you noted on there, like prize money is a big thing in other sports. See, playing, t- watching tennis and golf and whatnot, it's all about the prize money. I don't, I don't even know what the prize money is. For, for cyclists, it's all about that, that, uh, the result that gets you the annual paycheck. Um, and the big, I think the biggest, the biggest result to get you an annual paycheck is being a top, um, what they call GC rider, general classification rider, which is just another confusing term to, to mean that you are racing for the pink jersey in the Giro, the yellow jersey in the Tour, or the red jersey in the, the World Tour of Spain at the end of the year. They're the highest paid riders on salary, not because of their um, massive, massive checks they're getting from the prize money. Each team tends to have one, one GC rider. Um, some don't, but most teams tend to have one. Um, and then you, at the at the peak stages, so the stages of uh, the highest mountains, you tend to have 10 to 15 GC riders left uh, in the peloton. I'm sure we don't need to explain peloton. Campbell, anything else on the, on the yellow jersey? I don't think so. I think we kind of hit the nail on the head. It's just... It, the winner of the yellow jersey is the person who completes the course in the least amount of time cumulatively. Mm. So the flat stages, typically there's no time differences, but once you get into the mountains uh, and the time trial, that's where the main differences are made. And that's essentially where you win the yellow jersey is in, is in the high mountains and the time trial. I have a question, Campbell. Yes. Uh, how many bike lengths do you need to be to be get the same time as the person in front of you within the peloton? I don't know whether it's bike lengths as such, but they everyone on their bike has a as a transponder. So I think if there's a clear time gap, i.e., one second, I think that's when you you get doctor time. Um, yeah. But on the flat stages, they seem to be a little bit more lenient about that. So that's a good question, actually. I think there is a little bit of um, grey area around that. Gray area. Don't, don't get it started on gray area. We can do a, we can do a separate show on gray area. <laughs> to cover another jersey off uh, with with a similar um, similar theme, the white jersey. So the Tour de France, yellow jersey, white jersey. White jersey is exactly the same, except it's for the under uh, twenty five category, which is considered the young riders jersey. Unfortunately, the way the sport has gone over the last kind of couple of years, though, that uh, which, which is something we talked about in our last podcast, uh, the white jersey comes somewhat redundant as uh, 20, 22 year olds are winning the, the Tour de France. So they win the yellow and the white. The points jersey, Cambo. Mm-hmm. The green jersey. The green jersey. So, the, so this is the jersey for essentially the sprinters on the team. So there's points allocated at the end of every stage. And also there's points allocated halfway roughly on every stage for the green Jersey. And depending on the stage, whether it's a flat stage or a hilly stage, the amount of points on offer at the end and in the middle of the stage are are skewed. So on a flat stage, let's just say, I'm not sure how much points there are at the finish. There might be 50 and in a mountain stage, they might be 20. Um, you, you get the idea of the, the skewness. So it's a, it's a jersey for the, for the sprinters. And, um, yeah, the person who wins the most stages um, in sprints normally wins the jersey. Cavendish, I think, won six stages one year, won the green jersey. Um, Sargans won it by winning several stages. But now the way to win it seems to be going for lots of intermediate um, points. So those, the points on offer halfway through the stage. So there's multiple different ways to win it, um, but typically it goes to a sprinter. History shows us it's been a strong Australian sort of contingent that can be in and around the green jersey. Um, McEwen famously, but Caleb Ewan recently, um, there was some probably some guys in between, like Goss. Uh, I, I think came a third or a second. Yeah, he was close one. He Michael definitely Matthews, went for it. Michael Matthews uh, won one. Yep. Yeah, he... uh, won one. Um, so t- typically an Australian sort of flavour. But I, I, I like to think they brought the intermediate sprint points to liven up stages 
uh, throughout the middle, um, which I think has worked, but now starting to backfire a little bit because it's mm. to um, have less in, less interest in the green jersey, which then leads me back to what I initially said, how much actual prize money is there in the green jersey because it doesn't sound like as much. The, I guess the interesting part that I find about the green jerseys, it adds another, like Max said, it adds another element to the race in some points. So for example, if, if there is points up the road, there's incentive for a team to chase, for a team to keep it together, um, to, to enable that rider to uh, be able to contest for those points. If, if uh, for example, using Peter Sargon, if Peter Sargon is in the, in the main bunch and there's a breakaway of 10, then he gets no points because the breakaway will just chew up all those points, even though they're probably not interested at all in uh, what's there actually to win. So that, that, that gives the incentive for Peter Sargon's team, Bora, to ride the front. Um, and try and pick up those points. Would you um, say that the green jersey is probably the most confusing jersey <laughs> to explain? Yeah. 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 Easily the most confusing. I guess yeah, the, the best way of looking at it is it, it's the jersey for the sprinters to try and try and get something out of out of the tour, you know, tangible reward. The person who crosses the line first more often. Yeah. The I guess the other thing to note about the the green jersey too is that it's not sometimes the pure sprinters aren't interested in it because of that fact of the intermediate sprint. It's too hard to get over those climbs and contest for those intermediate places. Um, and some of the kind of the intermediate stages, which we'll probably get into a little bit later as to the stages that um, the sprinters can't get to the end of, uh, makes it too hard because they lose out on those things. Have you guys seen if, if there's any, if Caleb Ewan's indicated as to what, if he's going to go for the green jersey this year? Haven't heard anything about it. I think with the Volta, he wants to do the old stage in every tour. Makes yeah. me think he could be pulling out uh, early again. Well, I mean, he could have a knee injury again. Uh, <laughs> uh, Alex, Alex was. I, I mean, this is separate podcast, Campbell, but um, Alex was just a bit too nice in his journalism career and giving uh, Caleb the benefit of the, of the doubt. But I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt as well. Yeah. We know that he, he's not a real media man. He's not he's not ready to burn his friends just yet. <laughs> <laughs> On that, that that is an interesting point about the tour though. Is that people don't you don't really pull out the Tour de France. It's kind of like you go on the Tour de France. Everyone wants to be there, especially for the sprinters. There's the Champs Elysees, the famous stage at the mm. end around Paris. You got to you got to get there. Um, whereas the Giro, like Max was talking about, the Tour of Italy at the start of the year, there's a little bit. A little bit more. There's there's bigger things to 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 do at the end of the year, and if you go through a three week Grand Tour like the Giro, it sometimes is tough to perform at the back end of the year. Mm. And there's only about a month between the two, the the Tour of Italy and the Tour of France, so it's kind of hard to to be competitive at a high level at, at both events. I don't think mm. anyone's ever won both in the same year, have they? I think Pantani was the last guy to do it in the late nineties, I believe. Yeah. Froome got close a couple of years ago. Um, and that and that applies to both, like all, all kind of riders, sprinters, climbers. Um, you don't normally get through the entire of the, the Giro and then back up for the tour. The KOM jersey, the polka dot jersey, the last one, Max. Probably the, the most famous, I'd say. Oh, the yellow is famous. Yellow is famous, but the polka dot is It's very, iconic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, has been uh, the storyline in... Many tours in the last 10 years. The Warren Bargill, uh, Bargill one is the one that I famously remember where it was actually four or five guys going for it and they're all French, um, which makes it quite exciting. But it tends to be a, uh, it's a points at the top of different mountains. Obviously, mountains are uh, scaled from either HC, one, two, or three, I believe. Um, and uh, let's say HC would be worth 20 points if you cross the line first. Category one climbs would be worth 10 and so on down to three. And the, it tends to be the guys who were going for the yellow jersey who uh, have a bad first week that end up trying to go for that jersey in the second or third weeks. Yeah, I think it's changed slightly the last couple of years because I think maybe 10 years ago there was a, a, a rider from quite a small team that won the jersey by getting a lot of points early in the tour. Um, I think some of the category three and category four climbs had some significant points on offer. So now I believe that the HC, the hardest category and the cat ones are, you know, there's a lot of points on offer there. So it really is a Jersey for the, for the proper climbers. And like Max said, if you, 
fall out of the general classification, there's still a prize there for you to try and attack. But sometimes it, it can just be a byproduct of a, a general classification rider winning it. I think at the tour, it still stands as something worth winning, but every other tour, uh, mm. grand tour or uh, little one-week tours, the, the king of the mountain is almost insignificant. Bit of a token jersey. I wouldn't even be able to tell you who won the Giro d'Italia, king of the mountain. Oh, no, I can. It was it Jeffrey Bouchard, wasn't it? Mm. But only just... As in the memory of it, it's not. It's not. It's not going to be in your mind in five years' time. Jeez, no. not, like the, not like the Warren Bargy one, Tour yeah. de France, four or five years ago. That was that was iconic. Yeah, but but I think like that's that's when these jerseys really become important. Is when they start racing for them within the race. There's that bigger piece of the overall GC, the stage win, uh, and then within that, there's the green jersey, the poker jot jersey, and hopefully, one day there might be a race for a white jersey again too. Yeah, I still. I mean, we didn't touch too much on the white, but I still remember the Schleck boys fighting for white, um, and uh, Yates Yates boys when they were riding it, uh, watching the Mitchelton Scott doco, um, and hearing uh, the sport directors in the car yelling at the boys to defend white. I don't think that has happened in the last three or four years. Mm. The the other one, it's not a jersey, but there's a stage winner too which is a little bit confusing, which Max, Max touched on off the top. It's not just the winner of the overall, the accumulation of time. There's each day, there's a winner. There's a prize to be won. Yeah. And for example, uh, the Giro d'Italia, which had just gone, was um, won by Egan Bernal. Uh, but Team Quebecer, we thought were probably the best team because they had three guys that no one had ever heard of win three stages. Um, that's probably a bit harsh on Campanas but, and Nazolo, but I don't know the other one. Um, so it shows that you can have a successful tour without having a lead GC rider by going for stage wins. Normally won by sprinters in the pancake stages, um, the flat stages, and then uh, then the mystery of the breakaway. Which I'm sure we'll get onto at some point. Yeah. Alex, the breakaway. I'm just going to pass that one over to you when we get to the explain the breakaway. <laughs> Thanks. The um the type the types of stages. So you've got a you've got a grand tour, twenty one stages, two rest days within it. Sprinters, climbers, hybrid versions of the both, and then the breakaway riders. Sprinters is pretty self explanatory. The fastest guys, they um, enormous power, enormous uh, super efficient aerodynamics, uh, and normally get delivered, looked after all day. Just manage, manage. They can do a, a wild sprint at the end. Uh, and then within that, there's the lead out trains of those sprinters. They'll all have, not all of them, but a, a lot of the the big sprinters will have two or three guys at least allocated to them to to guide them to the line. Because as we know, a sprint can come so unstuck uh, without without that kind of assistance. Anything yeah. else on the sprinters? Well, like you said, the the yeah. idea of it is to you no know, most teams will have a sprinter. There might be five or six really good sprinters at the tour and those sprinters will maybe have three or four teammates that it's their job to keep their sprinter uh, as close to the front as possible within the last couple of kilometers and ideally protect them until 200 meters to go. And then the sprinter will normally sprint from about 200. So the idea of, of the teammates is to, is to get their sprinter in the best position as close to the finish line as possible. There is a changing of the guard a little bit with how many people they bring uh, to the tour based purely for the sprinter. Um, I remember early days with Cav. Um, HCC Columbia used to have all eight riders riding for Cav. Mm. Um, FDJ's taken all eight before for DeMar. Um, it's more now there's like they have two or three riders. Maybe there's a hybrid in there, like a Thomas against the hybrid for Caleb Ewan. Um, but it tends to be just sort of two riders. Caleb might have sometimes they just have one. Those days when all eight riders are at the front for for Cav, that was and watching them peel off one by one from time. And then maybe the most, the arguably the most important one of those those riders that they have to allocate towards that sprint is the last one, what they'll call the lead out man, the guy that's that has to has to guide them through the most traffic, the most mess. There's riders going everywhere. There's people pulling off. There's people going faster than others. And they're, they're the one that has to, to take them to that line. Because if they aren't there, obviously they're not in the position to sprint. 
but also they they can't be left uh, out in the wind too early. The the other the other part, Max, a favorite element of yours is um, the tier two sprinters. It's not just about the big boys. There is also, I guess, a level down that can climb a little bit more, but also um, sprint pretty well at the end of the end of a, a long stage. And again, another Aussie flavor in the lead out man, Renshaw, uh, made a career out of it. Um, you almost have to be as quick as the sprinter, but just that last little bit off, almost like Morkov is for, for anyone who rides a quick step. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, tier two, um, usually have to be Italian. Um, <laughs> the, the, the guys that get dedicated, maybe one rider to help them out. They're not as quick. Um, and then there's some guys uh, like a Michael Matthews or a John Degengolb or a Philip Gilbert, um, Peter Sagan, who aren't as quick as the, the elite sprinters, um, but need a little bit of hills to get rid of a Caleb Ewan, um, but still a flat stage to finish. And then there's some absolute freaks, which are my tier three, um, which will be the Van Der Poel and Van Art that can actually win on a, a mountain and a, and, a, and a flat stage. Um, we've seen Vanderpoel doing some amazing things over the Tour de Swiss at the moment, but um, there's almost three different tiers there. Um, and you, the tier two is the tier that's almost going missing um, because mm. it's either tier one and tier three, it seems to be the win. I guess the, the, the only other thing to note on sprinters, like Max talked about, there's that new, there's this new category of, well, there's a new category of two guys, Matthew Vanderpoel um, and Matthew Vanderpoel. And Wood, Wood Van, Van Art, <laughs> Matthew Vanderpoel and Wood Van Art, the the two biggest kids on the block at the moment. They've come from cyclocross and they've just kind of made this big section of bike riders almost extinct because they are so talented. They can climb, they can sprint. Um, probably hear Cambo reference the Vans a lot. Uh, they're those two. They're those two guys. Yeah, so we, t- we still forget their name when we introduce yeah. them every now and then. Every now and then. There's a few other in that category. Um, I think Tom, Tom Pincock looks like he's going to be in there. Julian Alaphilippe is probably in there as well. So, um, And it looks like three out, of the, three out of those four are going to be at the tour. Yep. Mm, going to be some very exciting stages with those three. Julian Alaphilippe, Matthew van der Bol and Wout van Aert. The next big category, climbers, pure climbers, they fit into normally that GC role. Um, that's that's their goal. You, you, they'll pick up stages along the way, but it's really about it's all about winning those, those general general classification um, stages. And as we talked about before, once they, if things don't go right for them on the general classification, the yellow jersey, uh, they can start to pick up other prizes through the KOM jersey, uh, the polka dot jersey and or through stage victories. That's well put. You're either a leader or you're a domestique for that leader. There's normally three or four climbers per each team. Um, and the worse your tour is going, the more likely chance you are to get a chance to go out in a breakaway um, and try and get some points for the Kingly Mountain or try and snag a stage win. The guys that win the yellow jersey are more than just climbers though. These days, you've got to be pretty much an all-rounder. Besides being able to sprint, you've got to be able to climb well. Obviously, I think it's the most important thing, but you've also got to be able to do a good time trial. You've got to be able to go downhill as well quickly. You've got to be able to be good at positioning, not lose time on flat stages, windy stages. So I feel like the days of pure climbers um, winning the Tour de France are they could almost be extinct, I think, just with this new new crop coming through. I know Egan Bernal might be classified as a, a pure climber who's just won the Giro, but you need to be, you know, really good as an all-round rider now to to win the yellow jersey, I think. Someone's taken a time trial school to Columbia because they're they're all starting to be able to ride TTs. Mm. Um, so even they're probably in that category as well. There's this probably is it another couple of categories we missed? There's probably a TT specialist. Um, which is uh, they can sort of double roll as we've seen Ghana do. They can win. T- there's always a time trial within a Grand Tour, sometimes two, um, and it's handy to have a TT specialist to go out and attack that stage. And Ghana for Team Ineos is that, but then he works on the front of the peloton because he's a powerhouse as well. So um, that's a handy category. Most teams tend to have someone who's a power 
TT or um, front of the peloton type rider. And then there's all the, also the Bordeaux. They get their eyes at the French word for Thomas de Ghent, basically. He's got his own category. Um, Tony Gallopin. Rulers. Lewis Leon. Rulers, sorry. Yeah. Rulers, uh, yeah. Lewis Leon Sanchez. Um, these guys who constantly elite at finding a breakaway um, and have had more stage wins than probably someone like Egan Bernal. Uh, they, they constantly get, get over the line. It's also like to, to, to go on Max's point about the, the kind of the breakaway specialist, which kind of overlaps with the time trial specialist a little bit. It's not, it's not exactly easy to get in a move. It's not like you just put your hand up and say, yep, I'll go on the breakaway. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a skill. It's a hard thing. And when, when there's a stage where they know that the breakaway will go to go to the line or it's highly likely that it'll go to the line. Um, it's a hot select group to make versus when there's a 200 K flat stage, anyone can pretty much get in the breakaway that day. Are we going to try and explain the breakaway, Alex? Is that on the run sheet? That, that was, uh, my next question to pass over to you, Campbell. Well, unless there's anything you've you've got to add on the time trial as a uh, former specialist. Well, I mean, the time trial in a Grand Tour is is significant. It's a really good opportunity for people to take time on their rivals because there's no drafting. You're by yourself. Um, traditionally, they're between sort of 10K and up to 50K. I think those days of the, the 50K TT might be behind us a little bit. Um, but yeah, like Max said, it's normally, normally a TT specialist that wins the time trial, but like I touched on just before the, the general classification riders are suddenly starting to become people that can win time trials too. And traditionally they're, they're flat time trials averaging roughly 50 K an hour. Um, and every now and then the organizers will throw in an uphill TT, which is, which is rare, uh, but super exciting for, for viewers. If anyone wants to watch an uphill TT, I'm pretty sure the Tour de Swiss has got one in a couple of days. Once again, we don't know how you're going to find the footage, but <laughs> uh, I think they've got a they've got an absolute ripper of a TT coming up. And then I guess another another element of the TT or another type of the TT is the team's time trial. Bring it back, personal favourite of mine. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, team time trial is is exactly what it says it's a it's a time trial within your team so instead of doing it by yourself you do it with your your eight other other teammates um time still taken from point a to point b and normally in the tour de france they have it in the first three or four days um to make it as as even as possible with the crashes with people getting sick people drop out as the tour goes along so if they would have it on stage 17 or stage 18 like max said there could be a team doing it with two people, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, awfully unfair. So normally they are in the first three or four days, but we don't have one at the Tour de France this year. Not as many time gaps in the TT, especially the top 10 teams. Mm. Um, then obviously a, a, a one of the teams down the bottom that doesn't have as much money in that sort of area can lose maybe a minute, but the top 10 sort of certainly are sort of within the same minute. Yeah. Do, do we like them? Do we want them back? They're good to watch. Yeah, they're good to watch. I don't think they add much to a tour, though. Yeah, I I think it's maybe like a nice thing on the first day, 10 kilometers. It's a good showpiece. GC guys aren't going to lose too much time, and it just provides another, another chance for a team to win a stage. Really, that's all it is. Except in the old days with the Lance Armstrong era with 60K team time trials with teams losing 10 minutes. Camboy, the next point, can you just quickly um, cover off what the breakaway is, why there's a breakaway and explain it to everyone, please. Thank just, you. just just quickly, please. Yeah, just quickly and just uh, in layman's terms, I'll try and do my best. <laughs> so the breakaway is normally on, if you're watching a bike race, it's the small group that isn't the peloton off the front of the race. Um, normally the riders in this group, are they're not sprinters. They're not people going for the general classification. They're normally from the smaller teams um, that don't have a rider for, for sprints or for general classification. So they're not going to be trying to, to keep the group together for a sprint or for a, 
for the general classification. Um, and normally the breakaways are not successful because there are teams that do have a sprinter or that do have a general classification rider that wants the group to finish all together. Um, but every now and then the breakaway does survive. Um, and yeah, normally, normally they're more successful in week two and week three when the race has settled a little bit, um, when the general classification riders know who's who. Um, but normally in the first week on, on a sprint stage, if you go into a breakaway, it's, it's not going to be likely um, that you're going to survive. The biggest one I get, Campbell, and I'll ask you a question with this, people always say to me, well, if the break's got 10 minutes on the peloton, and Cadell Evans needs nine minutes to get back in yellow. Why didn't he just go in the break? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, so the reason why Cadell wouldn't have been able to get in the break is because those other GC riders, their teammates will be seeing, okay, Cadell Evans is going into the breakaway. He is a threat to the general classification for our leader. We're going to chase him um, when the gap is at 20 seconds and shut it down quickly. Um, yeah, it's it's a good question because why why doesn't just people just go on the break and go and get thirty minutes on on their rivals? Well, that's where the the teammates come into it and where the team aspect of cycling really comes to the fore. And that's just another really tricky thing to try and explain is is how um, reliant people are on their team in cycling. Max, out of all the things we've covered so far, is there anything that you can remember from your cycling journey that just stood out as like? something you just couldn't understand, something you couldn't wrap your head around? Uh, yeah, I couldn't really understand um, the whole crossing the line and then starting the next day um, all together. And then the point that we probably haven't covered off is the is almost a sag wagon, the people right out the back. And, for example, in a TT, you see the TT specialist, then you see 15 GC guys in a row in the placings, then you see just this massive time gap to about a hundred riders who just gave up on the TT. And that's one thing that I always found confusing is there's literally only 10 people riding for every stage and the other 170 riders there are doing a roll. And then they, once their roll's done, they'll park it, they'll put their hand up and they'll run tempo all, all, the, way, all the way into the line. And then they don't get handicapped the next day. They're starting the next day exactly where the guy with the yellow jersey starting. And I guess that that plays to the breakaway conversation that Campbell explained before is that if you're you don't have to finish with the main guys if if you finish within the time cut, which is another thing the time limit. Um, that goes in the grey area podcast. Uh, that, yeah, that's the grey area podcast. <laughs> um, you're fre- you're fresher for the the second two weeks if you don't go super deep trying to hang on and kind of hang on for twentieth place. Um, that sets you up for the second and third week where you can put yourself in a breakaway or potentially just be better than the GC guys. That's very rare, but you could put yourself in the breakaway and, um, and win, win a stage. That's where you get success. Quite beneficial for only one man, maybe two to have good times within your team. So then the other six, uh, I think it's eight riders now, the other six are quite flexible with what they can do within breakaways, pelotons, tactical wise, um, so the, the most teams tend to have one and then a backup in case there's obviously an injury uh, or their leader's going no good. The time cut. Campbell? Riddle, so, me, this, Campbell. Riddle me this. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a uh, – the Tour de France isn't a, a fun run sort of race, you know. There's, there's, <laughs> there's standards to uphold. So every stage – every rider has to finish within a certain uh, time of the winner on the flat stages. The, the time limit is smaller on the hill, on the hilly stages, the mountain stages, the time is, is bigger. So normally it's a percentage of the time. Um, so on a flat stage, the, the time limit might be 15 or 20 minutes as we're in the big mountains. You can finish, you know, sometimes up to one hour behind the winner and be able to start the next day. But if you finish outside the time limit, whatever the race organizers give you or give the, you know, the, the pre-race um, communication, if you finish outside that at the end of the stage, there's every chance that you won't be able to start the next day. But in some circumstances when there's, you know, upwards of 20 or 30 riders that finish outside of that limit, you might be granted 
uh, access to start the next day. So again, it's a little bit of a gray area and, and the organizers will decide whether they go hard and fast on the limits or, or have a little bit of slack, but if it's just one or two riders, they'll, they'll cut you out. There would be maybe two or three uh, guys that get cut off every year. I'd say around that. Mm. And, and I'd say about 50 that get led back in. Um, I remember the famous stage where DeMar had his whole FDJ team back there riding for him. DeMar's a sprinter for FDJ um, and was trying to get him back in because there was only a couple of stages left and would have been the favourite for the final stage. And the whole FDJ team finished outside the tournament and they got rid of them all. They got rid of them all. They, they said, screw you. Yeah. But also you don't, you don't start the day going, all right, I need to finish this stage in two hours and 20 minutes. You're, you're giving a percentage of the winner's time and you spend your whole day trying to calculate, well, if I've got 20%, but based off how fast the first guy is racing, uh, that's your time limit. See, there's a there's an element of unknown and you hear stories of people like um, getting their calculations wrong of what the time limit is and just cruising <laughs> into line and missing the next stage because of it. Yeah. Campbell, was anything... Anything you you found super confusing or you get multiple questions on? Um, I mean, when I was back in school, people, I think we might have touched on this already, but people were like, oh, how, how can Mark Cavendish win 10 stages, but he finishes like 190th on the general classification? <laughs> and I think we kind of touched on this that, um, you know, sprinters can't climb traditionally or they're not going to be able to, to win the general classification. So that, that's, that's kind of a hard one that people, you know, question me about a lot of the time, but um, hopefully we've kind of tackled that. This, the, this one about uh, another one that I've got just about riding tempo um, and the Ineos dominating uh, team Ineos, the British side uh, are dominating tours by riding tempo. Um, how much benefit is, especially going uphill, is Egan Bernal getting from having eight riders riding tempo in front of him? I think Egan gets next to no benefit himself, um, but you get the consistency of um, kind of your power distribution. If you think about it, you've got so much power to put out or so much energy to expend throughout a day. Um, the hardest part of, and, and that flows to another question we've got about going to the red zone. What's the red zone? So that piece where you go over threshold and you start to produce lactate and you start to fatigue, the more time you spend in there, the harder it is. And so if you're going up a climb and going into the red, out of the red, into the red, out of the red, which is created by people attacking and people going faster and slower, um, the more fatigued you'll be at the back end. Whereas when you've got a team of uh, the strength of Ineos that they have, when they've got climbing support and they can just ride a nice consistent tempo, that's where you get the benefit of, um, of having a full squad. The reason that it's beneficial is because if you, if you get over the top of a climb and say that there's a valley that you have to ride in, um, you've got teammates there even if people have gone on the attack. Whereas if, um, if you go with that attack and you're isolated or it's just you, then you have to ride to kind of fix those scenarios. So you've got teammates to kind of just carry you through the dangerous parts. They carry you up the climb in a nice, consistent manner. They fix any problems that you have on the flatlands to ride on the front, keep you out of the wind. Max, do you have any, as a footballer, do you, is that a weird thing to think about that you, you're thinking about not going full gas? Yeah, I'll call, I'm starting to call bullshit on the red zone thing. Um, yeah. I'll, how, how, I'll go on my footy thing in, in a sec. How about like you'll hear, let's say Vanderpol finishes his stage in the Tour de Suisse, he goes, I spent three hours in the red zone. I'm starting to call bullshit. Like, hey, it's getting longer and longer and longer in the red zone. <laughs> like, the red zone's almost the normal zone to be in. Uh, in footy, um, no, it's pretty much go. Like you never. No, it's you, go from minute one to minute 120, but there's so much stopping um, and so much um, time in between goals and a little bit of time on the bench and time when the ball's nowhere near you. Um, for example, it's in the forward 50, me and the backman are outside sort of just standing there waiting for the ball to come back out. So there's a lot of rest, but yeah, there's no, um, there's sort of no stopping once you're on as well though. Mm. Well, there's that, that weird scenario where like, it's not like you're not going to go hard at the ball. When are you going to go, oh, no, I might just um, go 75% here to keep myself for when I need to go at the ball in the last quarter. 
Whereas that's kind of what the kind of what they're doing when if a rider attacks and they go, no, nah, I've got my two teammates here, they're gonna carry me up this climb. You're kind of just going, no, nah, I'm gonna let him go. We're also trained to further our limit, if you know what I'm saying. So we're trained in pre-season to be these amazing athletes. Pre-season's almost a pure running, six-month running block that uh, professional runners would do. And then we go out and play a game of football that's nowhere near the numbers that we did in pre-season. But then we're adding tackling, we're adding contested ball, we're adding uh, repeat efforts. So we're adding a bit, but we're nowhere near our running limit so you can be able to get through the four quarters feeling relatively comfortable that you're not going to be in the three-hour red zone that Vanderpoel was in. Mm. I think that's also another good point on what Ineos have been able to do is they've been able to do what they do in training, which is ride at a consistent, really high power, but not in the red zone. They've been able to train at that and then be able to put that into a race. In, you know, Previously, on the last climb of a, of a stage, there'd just be attacks left, right, center. And you can't really train properly for that, but you can train as a team to ride at a certain power um, and then be able to put that into race day. So yeah, that's, that's probably another, another thing about the Ineos train. If you, um, like we, we pay a champion data, uh, an ex champion data guy at our club. He's now full-time works at Melbourne. So he looks at every stat, every flow, um, game momentum. He knows everything about football and not marks kicks. They're not stats that they really care about. There's so mm-hmm. many other stats. And he's paid extremely well. Um, I dare say the guys who count the numbers in the cycling industry um, would be paid very well. They're, they're, they're pretty much the key men. And I, I mean, I've just watched that Movistar doco, which is oh, it's a great watch watching Movistar just blow up. They... So season two is even better than season one. I didn't think it would get better, but it did. Um, and all every time they finish a race, all they do is they go, they talk in numbers. They go, I was doing 320. You see, he was doing 370. You see, he was doing 380. Like it's just so much numbers. And that's yeah. not what we see when we watch Phil Ligon and Matthew Keenan commentate the tour. We see the chateaus and um, the beautiful parts of the tour and a little bit about what we talked about in the first half an hour. But if you went into the cycling world, everything is numbers. It's all yep. numbers. Yep. And there's there's not there's one number that I guess is identified as the most important number, especially when we're talking about climb, which is your power to weight. How much power you're putting out, how much you weigh, in turn, how fast you got to climb. Yeah. Um, that's the one that they go mad for. The the other point around your um your little uh, spill about Ineos before Cambo is that they're able to do that because of money. Mm-hmm. They've got the biggest budget. Um, there's no salary cap in cycling. You can spend as much money as you want. So if you can pay these guys millions of dollars, then you can create that scenario where you've got the um, three of maybe the best 20 guys in your squad uh, and you can do that job. Whereas uh, for the smaller teams, smaller budget, you can't. it's not actually possible to create that environment where they're just riding at a steady tempo because you don't have the money to keep those guys at those squad. They're going to chase those bigger contracts. Yeah, I mean, that's worth noting that at the Tour de France, I believe that Ineos will have maybe four guys that could win the Tour de France if they were riding for another team. So, yeah, like you said, it comes down, comes down to money, really. Ineos, yeah. Ineos's eighth rider would be in the top 10 highest paid um, out there in the peloton, potentially. Um, mm. The one thing that I've never understood when we get into the finances, and this isn't our strength, uh, the three of us, but... <laughs> Um, I, I, I never understood why a team would control a cycling team. There doesn't seem to be much money back for riders. And we hear so much about Jerry Ryan with the Australian team almost being money in and no money out. Um, and we've talked about, we don't know how much prize money there is. And I don't think the prize money is going back to Jerry Ryan's pocket. I think it's going to paying the riders. It just, it, it, it seems like it's going to be a never changing thing. Ineos will be strong and Ineos will be strong forever because Ineos have money. And there's not not many other businesses are going to go, you know what? And in fact, there's one, South Africa, the, the team Quebec are doing a beautiful thing with what they're um, writing about. I don't know where their money's coming from, but they're doing a beautiful thing and getting a good message out. But have you brought an Ineos Grenada yet by watching Ineos ride up the hill? <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> no, it, make, it makes sense. And the, the, sport, the sport is kind of, you can chop it up into kind of two halves. There's one, there's... Um, 
an individual that loves a sport, Jerry Ryan, that's willing to donate a ridiculous amount of money for next to no return. He puts it's his donation. It is donation. He puts a Jayco badge on there, but I don't know how many caravans he saw, he sold from it. He paid for Campbell and my cycling career. Um, like he, he's just a super generous guy um, and loves the sport. He gets to go to the tour each year. Uh, I guess when you get to that level of wealth, that's what you can do. And then there's, and yeah, and another one is Jim Radcliffe, the Ineos owner, um, who's trying to sell Grenadiers. They might get a little bit of marketing benefit out of it, but really it's it's donated cash. Um, and then, but there is a few teams that have companies behind that, but it's a pretty hard, it's a pretty hard argument for the amount of money that they have to invest, for the amount of awareness that they get from it. Um, it does the math doesn't add up. Mm. There's no footballers are paid for TV rights and the TV rights go to the UCI, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Or like the Tour de France, whoever watches the Tour de France goes to the Tour de France company. I'm not sure what they call themselves, but yeah. Uh, so there's no money going back to the riders, no money going back to the teams. For example, football club get 30%, footballers get 25%, the players get 25%, community get about 20%. So it's a much better organisation how it flows out. Um, cycling players are paid pretty much by uh, Jerry Ryan, and uh, the, all the money goes to the big the big hitters at uh, UCI or Tour de France or Giro d'Italia. Mm. Yeah, so there's one company ASI that own the Tour de France. You own the Tour de France, pretty much own the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do whatever you want because you own the Tour de France, and there's no chop. And I think the the biggest the biggest part that the sport misses out on that you touched on there before Max is that there, there is no, there's no 20% that's invested in the, the youth or the younger teams or the Devo teams that they're still run on the same, the same wicket. Um, The team that Campbell and myself rode for uh, was run by Andrew Christie Johnson and Steve Price, two guys in Hobart donating their time, donating their money just to run a cycling team. So there's nothing from any end of the spectrum uh, that's reinvested at the bottom, but they're still managed to um, put on this massive event every year. There's massive paychecks flying around the the world tour ranks, and there's another Tour de France. The I guess that also covers another question we got around: Why do they vary courses each year? Why, why is it um, a different course each year? Uh, cash, because each town you pay via the the bike race to come through your town. It's pretty much a, an advertisement. It's a TV ad that you see stage two through town X. They I show remember, the amazing chateau. Yeah. And everyone goes, I'm going to go on holiday there. I remember That's when the, the, idea. the Olympic torch came through my town in Sydney for the Sydney 2000 and made its way. I was living in Langwarren, actually down uh, down near Frankston. And I remember the Olympic torch coming down Langy Cranbourne Road, uh, being run down. And we were one of the towns. I don't think you had to buy it then. We bid, we, I think we bidded for the torch to come through our town. I'm presuming it's something similar on a much, much, much bigger scale. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, it did used to be the Tour de France where they'd sort of go around the perimeter of France. But now, they're, you know, if you look at some routes that, you know, they might only go through like a quarter or a third of, of France. So, yeah, it just comes down to who's got the most money. And obviously, there's the iconic climbs that feature in the Tour, you know, pretty much every year and, and towns that feature every year. But for the most part, it comes down to, to dollars and cents. So mm. to get from to get from stage to stage, I've always been asked, uh, and early on, I just thought they started where they finished. Um, Good point. Sometimes there's little buses. Sometimes there's even airfares uh, to get across. Uh, but rarely do they start from the same town because, once again, that's a, I'm presuming that's a much bigger budget for the town to be able to get a finish and a start. It's a good point, Max. People think, yeah, you know, they finish in this town and they start there the next day. Sometimes there might be a, a three-hour bus ride after the stage or before the stage, um, which just adds to the fatigue. And normally the the airfares that you're talking about, they might be on a rest day where they might have to fly from the, um, you know, the south to the north or something like that. But, uh, yeah, that's a really good point that people don't understand is that the tra- the amount of travel that's involved on the bus after riding 200Ks in 35-degree heat, um, which just adds to the the drama of of the Tour de France, which, which people don't get to see. There's no there's no hotel on top of the Tourmalo. Um, <laughs> I know from experience I've, I, I, I've ridden up the Tourmalo. Uh, 
Some it, it, it leads to another one, which you probably won't go into. But the the logistics around organising a race, oh. um, some do it. The Tour de France do it the best, and they are the best at it. I mean, I, I went to the Volta, and people didn't even know where they were going once they crossed the finish line. Yeah, uh, the absolute circus. The Spanish guys are hilarious. They just draw the finish line, and once you get over it, you go do what, what <laughs> go find an Airbnb or something. <laughs> The hotels is also interesting. You think they're staying in like five star hotels. Yeah, beautiful. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's far from luxury. And I think they they rank the hotels and then you get an average of um the the stars that they're ranked across the tour. So one one day you'll be in a five star hotel, the next you'll be in a three star hotel. Um and I don't know if there's a whole lot of consistency in that ranking system. I'd love to know performance based on sleeping in a five-star hotel the next day. Someone, it's someone to champion data, make their way to the Tour de France and just study every little step they can. And that could this, be an interesting one. This is what I don't understand. I'm not sure whether Ineos do this or not, but the big team, surely they would invest in, okay, we're just going to put a lot of money into having good hotels every night at the Tour de France. <laughs> that seems like a worthy investment. It sounds like any of us have enough money just to build a hotel in every, in every suburb of France. Why not? Yeah. And to enter Campbell's favorite point of all, uh, you, sh- you share a room. I don't know about what happens when, when you go, when, when you go to, to Sydney, will you share a room with a teammate? Uh, we used to. Uh, and then if you wanted to be on your own, you had to pay for your own, the extra dollars it was for your own room. Uh, now it's every player is on their own, and now some there's even some staff that are paying to go on their own. So like it's all on their own. Basically, the hotel's booked out just for the football club. I mean, I, I saw Rowan Dennis on his Insta story the other day. Luke Rowe chucked a pillow at him while he's sleeping. I'm like, Rowan Dennis is tr- going out there to try and win the Tour de Suisse. Yeah. If 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 Charlie Spargo whacks a pillow on me because we're <laughs> rooming together before before a prelim final, I'm not laughing like Rowan Dennis was. <laughs> yeah. That's bizarre. Anyway, that's a that's a that's a thing for another pod. And to, and to the to I guess, but at this important point because there is a highly scientific element to the sport, but there is a high there's this culture and kind of just legacy activities that the sport does throughout. That's it's probably a bit um, more entrenched in the the older European teams um, that they spend all this money on sports science, but they'll they'll put you in a room with it a terrible bed and some guy that's gone to sleep a completely different time that you are. I took, uh, I took some notes when I went to the Volta because I'd obviously play in an elite sport and the high performance stuff is way bigger than what football uh, AFL is in terms of when to eat like diet wise in numbers for wattage. And so it should be, we got a football. So it's a bit more random where cycling is purely based on your output. But some of the other stuff is so below football. I mean, AFL is, is, like is Melbourne, like we do get looked after. We're cycling probably apart from France and maybe Belgium isn't necessarily the, the biggest sport, but like drinking champagne after they win a, they win a stage. We're not allowed to drink seven days before a game. <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're drinking a couple of glasses of champagne after a stage win. On the last stage, the whole team, winning team, decides to have a glass of champagne while riding a bike. TAC don't endorse that, do they? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, Max, not at all. But it's but that that's it. There's there's weird like, um, and then you go into the the older European teams and the I think the nutrition and the the sports science really goes down a rung again. We go to the old French ways, the old Italian ways. You have um, big rides, Mo. You have spaghetti bolognese. Yeah, <laughs> and lots big, of it. Big talent there. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Well, obviously there's there's else, but there's anything else that stands out as one final point because we're going to go through the team sheets um, when they come out and then we can talk about the different teams and the Aussie we'll guys. First. We will be first. We will be first. Um, anything else that stands out? It's, it's a really important point. I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of things that we've missed here. Um, I think we've, we've touched on on the basics of, of the jerseys the type of riders, the different stages. Um, it's almost, is there, is there two that we sort of, two that I was thinking we might've touched on at the start, probably don't have enough time now. Some doesn't, doesn't, oh, isn't there cash for winning an intermediate sprint and cash for being the most combative rider uh, for the day? So if you're in a break, you can get 500 euro or something. 
for being the most combative. So when the breakaway is ending, one guy will go for one last random attack to get himself 500 euro for the day. I th- yeah, I think you might be right. There might, there's definitely cash for intermediates and for KOMs. And I'm, I think there might be a yeah, most combative, most aggressive rider on the day. Um, and then that rider gets to wear, instead of white numbers, they get to wear red numbers <laughs> the next day. <laughs> and then there's the yellow helmets, which I call the Movistar Award. Uh, <laughs> We've got the team class. Team class, which team is the, class. Best, the best three riders over the line, I think. Is that right? Every day. The, so it's like, yep, the, the general classification, but team classification, your top three every day. Do yourself a favor and watch after listening to Cycling 101, go watch the Movistar doco. Unfortunately, it's in Spanish, but um, it's a great show on what happens inside a team bus for mine. Like they've, they, the Movistar must have signed off to some great um, coverage for that uh, team because it's, I think it's horrible for their brand, but it's great for the cycling viewer. <laughs> The 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 team's classification, I think, is the biggest example of a an award that no one really cares about at any point in any race. Mediocrity, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you've got further questions, please send them in. Uh, be on YouTube or on the socials. Send them in. Um, thanks for the TAC for supporting the podcast. Thanks for Matt being our performance apparel partner. Uh, thanks, Max. Thanks, Campbell. We'll see you back at the Social Club for a, an official Tour de France preview. Yep. Thanks, Alex.